Okay, beloved, we are, uh, we're back to Romans. We're back to Romans. We are in Romans 16. So I'd invite you to turn there. By the way, just real quick, I, I wanted to mention this. I just wanted to say thank you to, to Ryan. He plays the drums. He's right there. He plays the drums every Sunday. Uh, he's been doing it since the beginning. He's uh, faithful. He almost never takes vacation, and uh, I just wanted to say thank you to him and also the band for their hard work they put in every week, okay? I like drums, so I always like them to be up there, but I don't mind a a coffee set every once in a while as well. I really like it because I can hear everyone sing really well. It was really beautiful this morning, so I'll praise to God for that. We are in Romans 16, as I said. If you're using one of those blue church Bibles that are underneath the chairs around you, that's on page 950. And um, let me just remind you that as of chapter 15, verse 14, the teaching portion of Romans has ended. We are really now just in the concluding remarks of Paul, the closing remarks, and we looked at the remainder of chapter 15, and we learned some things there. In other words, he's not instructing us or teaching us, but we're kind of just looking at the end of this letter and seeing if there's things that we can draw out, maybe some principles, something we can learn. And we learned uh, several things about Paul's life and his ministry and, and tried to apply those to ourselves. Now we're in chapter 16. We're still in this closing section. We're almost done. And by the way, we'll be, after we are finished, which will either be next Sunday or the Sunday after, we will move to First Peter, which... Um, Tim read from this morning. So, um, chapter 16 breaks down like this. Basically, in verses 1 through 2, there Paul commends to the Christians in Rome uh, this lady named Phoebe. And then in verses 3 through 16, he, there are greetings, there are a multi- multitude of greetings that Paul asked to be given to a, to a number of folks in Rome that Paul has either knows or has some association with, although he's never been there, never visited, because people traveled around and moved around, he knew some folks in the city of Rome, the church in Rome. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 16 this morning. Then following that, 17 through 20, there's a warning. Paul issues kind of basically a final warning to the church. And then 21 through 23, he then sends some greetings from those that are with him from where he's writing to the church. In Rome, and then it finally closes. This letter closes with a doxology or a short, short word of praise to God. And so this morning we're just going to look at verses 1 through 16 together. Now, there are 24, uh, well, there's more than 24 names. There's 24 people that Paul addresses by name, and then there's a few name, names and weird stuff going on as far as the names here. I'm going to read this slowly. <laughs> I actually, I, I, I knew this was coming, and it's just difficult because these are not names that we use. There's one in here, Mary. That one I know well. You know, Mary, that's a good one. But the rest, ah, yay. So here we go, okay? Beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. 
Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Woo. All right, that's good. We're done, done with that part. So we'll have to come back to a few of those names in a second. Now listen, you read that and you just think, what, what is this? What's here for us? You know, this is just a number of greetings that Paul asked to be given to those in Rome. A bunch of weird names, not weird to them, but weird to us because we don't name our kids typically those kind of names. But uh, let me just remind you of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And even like when you're, you know, reading through genealogies or Leviticus, you know, some of these sections, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. And that was scripture I just read, right? And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So even in this section... According to 2 Timothy 3.16, we can trust that there's something here for us, something that we can learn, something that could be beneficial to us. Otherwise, God wouldn't have taken the time to make sure it was written down and recorded. And so there are a few things, and we'll, we'll point that out. Just a couple this morning. There might be more, but I'm just going to focus on a couple. Now listen, with the exception of Prisca, and you might be wondering about that name. Maybe you remember uh, this couple uh, being called, or her being called Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila. Do you remember that name, right? Okay, so you may be wondering why it's Prisca here. Well, Paul always, when he's referring to this couple, he always uses the name Prisca. That's actually her actual name, her formal name. Priscilla is a form of that name, and it's, it's in a sense, uh, and Luke uses it when he's referring to the couple. Uh, it's in a sense like saying little Prisca, little Prisca. It it's, can be a term of endearment. So it's the same lady, Prisca, Priscilla, 
Same lady, Aquila does not have two different wives. And Aquila is the man, okay? So with the exception of them in this list, and they're a married Christian couple, and they're spoken of, we know about them because they're spoken of in other places in the New Testament. So in the book of Acts, in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Timothy, in those books, this couple, we learn something about them. But with the exception of them, we don't really know anything else with great certainty about the other people mentioned here, other than what Paul says about some of them in the text and what we just read. And as, and as far as that, he doesn't really say a lot. So there's a lot of conjecture, speculation um, made concerning these folks, but the reality is we can't know any of it with absolute certainty because it's just not they're not written about in other places in the scriptures. So, but it, in spite of all that, there are some things that we can learn. And here's, here's one of them, and here's why. In the ancient world, it was customary to give uh, certain names to certain kinds of people or those of different social classes. And so ancient inscriptions, they look back, they, can, they see these names inscribed on, in various places, Ancient inscriptions indicate that a good number of the names that we just read here in Romans 16 were the same names used by or given to slaves. Slaves. And remember, Rome is built on a, a slave class. And so, for instance, Hermes in verse 14, that was among the most commonest um, slave names. So based on that, based on what we know from ancient history, based on those inscriptions, we, uh, we could say that, safely say that a good number, but certainly not all of the names on this list, were slaves. They were slaves. Or they could have been what we would call freedmen. Freedmen meaning that they were slaves who had been given their freedom. Okay? So we can conclude then, and this is kind of some, I'm getting to the point that one of the points we can draw out from this section we can conclude then that uh, the names, the names that the, the people, they were these folks here in the end of Romans 16, they were from various levels of the social ladder. Various levels of the social ladder. You with me? So you might have had slaves, you might have had freedmen, you had those who were not slaves. Uh, we're not sure, I'll get to it in a second, but certainly you could have had some people of a higher level also within this grouping. Okay? So various levels on the social ladder. You with me so far? Simple. Again, nothing, we're not, gonna, uh, we're not here going to learn anything earth-shattering because Paul's not giving us doctrine here. We're just drawing, really. We kind of peeked into his email, per, you know, in a sense, and when we see some of the things he's written, and we're just trying to see what we can learn from that. So, additionally, the Apostle Paul refers to some on the list, and you uh, probably uh, saw this as we were reading through it in verses 7 and 9, he refers to them as his kinsmen, his kinsmen, which is best understood to be referring to fellow Jews or uh, Paul's people, his fellow countrymen, which is exactly the same way Paul used the word kinsmen in chapter 9, verse 3, when he was talking about the Jewish people. Also, we learn from Acts chapter 18, verse 2, that Aquila, as I said, or the husband of Prisca, uh, was a Jew. That's what we're told in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. And it's a gen a generally assumed that his wife Prisca was as well. 
although the scriptures never say that specifically, but most likely she was also a Jew. So what do we learn? There are, and we already knew this, but again, we see it here even in this final concluding section that there are Jews and Gentiles. There's a mix of races within the church, okay? Finally, when you look at the Greek or original language this text was written in, the Greek actually indicates whether the names of these people are masculine or feminine, or another way to say it, male or female. Okay, the Greek tells us that. So of the 26 individual, individuals that Paul asked greetings to be given to, we know nine of them are women. Nine of them are women. So the bottom line is simply this. This is kind of the first lesson we're drawing from this section. This list of people in Romans 16 simply affirms the diversity of the church. That is, it was diverse in rank, diverse in race, diverse in gender. Diverse in gender. One person commenting on this section says this, the effect of the whole list is to emphasize the universality of the church. It is not a society of people from one nation or class or social grouping. Okay, with me so far? But what is it that brings people of different rank, social status, of different race, and of different gender together as one people, as one united community? What brings them together? Well, even that is very clear. Oh, I know you know the answer. I know you know it. But we see it affirmed here again, even in this final section. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Let me point out two of, of all this stuff going on here. There's not a lot, but one thing we do see is we see two phrases, and they mean the same thing, but they're repeated over and over and over again throughout this section. And that is the phrase, in Christ Jesus or in the Lord. And whenever you see something repeated, it's worth at least uh, taking note of. And so here, if you can look back at your text, and you can see in verse 3, Paul says, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. In verse 7, they were in Christ before me. Verse 8, my beloved in the Lord. Verse 9, our fellow worker in Christ. You know, he could just said fellow worker, but he doesn't. He adds this phrase, in Christ. Verse 10, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Verse 11, greet those in the Lord. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord. And greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. And finally, verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. In the Lord. In that vein, Paul says this in the book of Galatians, another letter he wrote to the church in Gal- there. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in who? Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the unifying factor. Commenting on that passage, one commentator says this. I wanted to point a couple of things out to you. 
Through faith in Jesus Christ, talking about Galatians 3.28, all who believe become one with each other, so that, in one sense, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. In In what sense is this true? Clearly, it does not mean that differences of nationality, status, and sex cease to exist. Right? You don't stop being a woman or a man because you've become part of the church. So he goes on to say, one does not lose his identity by becoming a Christian. Paul simply means that having become one in Christ, Christians now belong to each other in such a way that distinctions that formerly divided them lose significance. They lose significance. Or they should. He goes on to say, race is the first example. For Paul writes that there is neither Jew nor Greek. Today, this principle must be extended to deny the significance of all racial barriers. In Christ, there must be neither black nor white, Caucasian nor Oriental, nor any other such distinction. Concerning social status, he says, social status is a second example. For there is neither slave nor free. Again, this is not meant to deny that, in actual fact, there are social distinctions among men. It is merely meant to affirm that for those who are united in Christ, these things do not matter. Let me say again, they should not matter. They do not matter, therefore they should not. They should not matter. goes on to say, in fact... When such distinctions no longer matter, when men and women treat each other as true brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of their social standing, then the power of such distinctions is broken and a basis is laid for social change. On this pattern, the ideal church should be composed of members from all spectra of society, wealthy and poor, educated and uneducated, management and labor, and so on and so on. You with me? You get me? Now, I would add this, that the church should naturally reflect the community in which it is planted. I just want to add that side note. So, why do I say that? Well, if you were planted in, let's say, College Town, USA, you're a local church in College Town, USA, where everyone is college-educated, then that church is going to naturally be predominantly college-educated, okay? And it would be weird for them to say, we need to have people who are not college-educated, so we're going to go find some and try to draw them into the church. That would be weird. And I only say that as another example. If the church was planted in, I don't know, some white town where all the folks are white, then the church is going to be white, right? Or black, if it's in a black town and the church is there, it's going to be black because the church is reaching out to that particular area. It would be unnatural, and I've seen a church actually do this for the sake of diversity, try to draw folks in from other communities to try to make it diverse when that's not what we're called to. But the reality is, if the community is diverse, then the church should naturally reflect its community. So if the community, as North Fontana is, very mixed in every level, whether it be social status, whether it be race, certainly gender, 
okay? The church should reflect those things. And if it doesn't, that's strange. That is strange. You with me? Because in Christ, we are all one. Those distinctions out in the world do not come into the church and, and separate us. At least they should not. They must not. Finally, concerning uh, no male, no female, the writer uh, just says there's this example of gender. Paul declares that there is neither male nor female. And he goes on to say it's incredibly hard for us to maybe imagine how badly women were treated in ancient times. Okay? I mean, it, yeah, it was bad. In fact, some Jewish men prayed, I thank God that thou hast not made me a woman. Now, I say that whenever I consider a woman giving birth. But that's certainly probably not what they meant. So he goes on to state that in this verse, we have uh, one factor in this Galatians passage that has uh, contributed to the gradual elevation and honoring of women. It's Christianity that has elevated women throughout the world. There is no male or female in Christ. We are all one in Christ. And these distinctions that might exist in the world are obliterated, really. Doesn't mean roles are not, doesn't mean all the roles are obliterated, that you stop being a man or a woman in the church, but those kind of things do not play on our unity here in Christ and our coming together as one and our honoring one another as equal members in the body of Christ. Something unique about Christianity. In fact, you look into the uh, Islamic world and you can see women are still treated incredibly poorly. Incredibly poorly. All right, so there's this word. I want to quote this guy, but let me tell you the word first. Boy, oh boy, I don't even know if I can say it right. Heterogeneity. Heterogeneity, I think is how it is. It just means diversity or the diverse nature of something. So, so commenting on Romans 16 now, that whole section, because that's what we see there is heterogeneity. He goes on to say this, heterogeneity, or geneity, is of the essence of the church, since it is the one and only community in the world in which Christ has broken down all dividing walls. Amen? Amen? That was weak. Amen? Amen. Amen. So as we take a look into the first century church via Paul's, and that's really we're just kind of looking at it, via Paul's list of greetings in Romans 16, we can see then that it was composed of a diverse group of people, okay? United together as one community in Christ, in the Lord. And so it should be for the church today as well. The distinctions that divide people lose their significance in Christ and in his diverse but united church. And beloved, I, I, think it, I just think it's important to keep driving this home. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have become brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, a very unique family. And we should think of, care for, and treat each other accordingly. You hear me? And we need to keep saying that because the world is so unlike that. They're so unlike that. They are divided. They are separated. They do make issue of all these distinctions. 
It should not be so in the church. The church is a unique organization, a unique thing on the earth. Now, here's one other thing. So that was the first thing. It's a diverse, the church is, has diversity. But here's something else that we can glean from the section of God's word. And by the way, many other Bible commentators take time to point this out. And that is, while it is true, listen, while it is true that the scriptures prohibit women from taking on the role and office of pastor, elder, or overseer in the church. Those are the three things I just read to you. Pastor, elder, overseer, it's the same term. It's describing the same person. And the, and the scriptures prohibit a woman from taking that role. 1 Timothy 2.12, chapter 3, following verses. While that is true, and I know that might sound strange to you because there are churches in the area who have Pastor Bob and his wife Susie, I don't know why I said Susie. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Jane. I don't think we have a Jane in the church. Pastor Bob and Jane. Um, I know you see that. It's not biblical. In fact, that would be enough for me not to go. I wouldn't have to know anything else about that place if there's a lady there who is an elder or a pastor or the overseer. I'm not going. That is a, a compromise with our society and uh, against the scriptures. But while that is clear, let me say, it is equally true that women had a very important and active role in the first century church. And, and maybe you go, well, of course, yeah, they would. But you've got to understand, remember the first century. I mean, it was a male-dominated society. Women were, to a great degree, suppressed, held down, cast off to the side. Not so in the church. Not so in the church. And of course, we'd understand why, because they have equal footing in Jesus Christ. Right? See, it changes the way you think about the other gender. Christ does. So let me show you what I'm talking about, okay? Let me show you. And, that, and that's why I mentioned that all the women that Paul takes time to point out in this section, that is unique especially in that culture at the time. Romans 16, we'll look back here at verses 1 and 2. He says here, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. So I, you know she's a woman, but her name is in the feminine, but you know because he's, and he calls her, what does he say? Our sister. This is not Paul's uh, blood relative. He says, our sister, mine and yours, church in Rome. Why? Why is she a sister? Because she's in Christ. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencrea, different church, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So before Paul gets to verse 3, where he begins to ask for all these greetings to be given to a number of the believers in the church of Rome, he first commends to the church in Rome a woman named Cool, you said her name, Phoebe, who Paul said was a servant of the church at Sancria. Note this, that Sancria was about seven miles. It was a seaport, a busy seaport, an active seaport. and It was about seven miles from Corinth. Corinth, that area is where Paul wrote his, he was there when he wrote his letter to the Romans. Okay? So Phoebe's close to him. He may even be in Sincrea, I don't know. 
Now, the purpose of commending her, let me tell you just a few things, a few facts here. The purpose of commending her to the church in Rome was so that they might gladly welcome her and help her when she got there, which would certainly include lodging, okay, lodging, something simple as that. It was common for people to uh, travel throughout the Roman Empire, and it was possible because of the incredible systems of roads they had and some level of peace they maintained so that people could travel, and they did, whether it be by road or even by boat, ship. However, places to uh, lodge in or eat during their travels, like hotels, okay, were not common. They were not common, and, and if, there were, if, there were, if there was something like that, they were not always safe. Sometimes they were uh, activities for illegal behavior. So, because of that, because there were no you know, Hiltons or anything, if they had no family or friends in the area they were planning on traveling to or traveling through, then the traveler might make plans to stay with someone they didn't know, but was a friend or relative or associate of someone they did. So in that case, the traveler, because they didn't have cell phones or email, okay, so the traveler would, so he couldn't call and say, hey, church in Rome, our sister Phoebe's coming to stay with you. It didn't work like that. So what they would do is they would, this traveler would take along a letter of commendation from the person known to the potential host to confirm that the traveler was okay to stay in their home. It's that simple. That's how they did it in the first century world. Kind of crazy. And so that's what Paul was doing on behalf of Phoebe. Now, I said I'll have to say this. Because of her proximity to Paul at the time he was writing this letter to Rome and his commendation of her in the letter, it is generally believed among Bible scholars that this woman was the one who was assigned the important task of delivering Paul's letter to the Romans. Beloved, Think about that. This letter is without a doubt, without a doubt, one of the most, if not the most important and prized letters of the New Testament. And although we can't be certain, it is is quite likely that Paul entrusted the care and delivery of it to this woman named Phoebe. Named Phoebe. Beyond that, though Paul Paul says in verse 2 that she has been a patron of many. Now, here's something we, we know for certain. It's right here in the text. A patron of many and of Paul himself. Another translation of the Bible, instead of using the word patron, it uses the word benefactor. Benefactor. Uh, commenting on this description of this woman, and patron, benefactor are two good words to describe that Greek word, but a patron was one in, in that Greek culture. This is the way they understood it. A patron was one who came to the aid of others especially foreigners, by providing housing and financial aid and by representing their interests before local authorities. Sencria's status as a busy seaport would, would make it imperative that a Christian in its church take up this ministry on behalf of visiting Christians. Phoebe, then, was probably a woman of high social standing and some wealth who put her status resources, and time at the services of traveling Christians like Paul who needed help and support. 
right? So most likely a woman high on the social ladder, um, but a lady who used all of her blessings from God to serve the body of Christ. Uh, and in, just, just as everyone else would, but she, she used her resources to serve the body of Christ. She was actively involved. After Phoebe, you have Prisca, or Priscilla, and her husband Aquila. This married missionary couple who were tent makers, like Paul, they, sh- they shared the same uh, job, and we learn that in Acts 18.3. Aquila, Prisca, Prisca and Aquila, served Christ together and had ministered to and with Paul when they were living in Corinth, which is where Paul initially met them during his second missionary journey. And we get all that from Acts 18. And this couple had come to Corinth from Italy because Claudius, the emperor of Rome at that time, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, booted them out. When Paul left Corinth, he took along with him this couple to Ephesus, and he left them there to minister there, to continue the gospel work. He eventually came back and continued work there with him, but he left them there to continue the work. At some point, we don't know when, but clearly based on this letter and the greetings here, at some point after Claudius died, the emperor, and consequently then his decree of banishment on the Jews would have ended as well after he died, at some point this couple went back to Rome and continued their ministry there, which is where, you know, from Italy, they left Italy, so they came back. And now Paul is greeting them. He knows them. Paul called this couple, this couple, okay? So again, maybe it doesn't strike us, but it is striking considering first century. He emphasizes both. This couple are his fellow workers. Not just the man, but this couple, Prisca and Aquila in Christ. And he said they both had risked their necks for his life. And again, we don't know the specific circumstances surrounding that particular event. But this married couple endangered their own lives, both the man and the woman, in order to rescue the apostle Paul. Uh, there's some, some things are made about the fact that Prisca's name is almost always first, which is not normal. Normally you would not say, and even in that culture, even in our own, but certainly in that culture you would not put the woman's name first. You would have said Aquila and Prisca, but for some reason Prisca's name's always first. We have no idea why. I'll just tell you that. But it could be, it could be, she had a higher social status, she was maybe, or she was preeminent in the ministry, she did more, I don't know. It could also just be her personality, <laughs> she was more outgoing, we don't know, we don't know. But anyway, the bottom line is both are recognized by the Apostle Paul, and by the way, recorded forever in the scriptures, forever her name is there. Wouldn't that be cool if you're... If someone, Paul, wrote us a letter and he said, I want to send some greetings to you and your name was there, it'd be something significant. It's going to be there forever. And so we continue to look at these women. Then in verse 6, Paul says this, uh, 16, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Finally, like I said, a normal name. Along with Mary, Paul also mentions three other women who had worked hard in verse 12. And again, you know, it's interesting he only speaks like that about the women. It doesn't mean that the men didn't work hard, but he, he emphasizes this fact. He emphasizes this fact about the women, that they worked hard. They were hard workers. In, in, in Romans 16, 12, he says this, uh, Greet those workers in the Lord. 
Tryphena and Tryphosa, greet the beloved Perses, who had another woman, who has worked hard in the Lord. All three of these, like I said, are women along with Mary. And the word that's translated worked and workers, just so you know, it implies labor to the point of fatigue. It's not like, hey, they, you know, they did some stuff, they're, they're doing some stuff for the Lord. No, they, they've, they're giving their lives. To the, I mean, they're, in the sense that they're working really hard. Sweat, and labor, it's intensive. Okay, and he, and he points that out. By the way, Tryphena and Tryphosa, again, we don't know with certainty, but people think that they might have been sisters. Just interesting because their names come from the same Greek root. And just like we might do today, uh, it was not uncommon to give daughters names with a certain resemblance. So like uh, Jean and Joan or something of that nature. So they may have been sisters. We don't know. But, uh, but more interesting is their names mean dainty and delicate. And so it's kind of cool that Paul says these workers in the Lord, dainty and delicate. Yeah, they're women, but they work hard. They're hard workers for the Lord. Just interesting. He calls Persis beloved and says she also, you know, he, he was, she was cherished to him and he says she also worked hard in the Lord. Then in verse 7, Paul says this in Romans 16, 7, greet, we're still looking at the ladies, greet Andronicus and Junia. Andronicus is the man. Junia is the lady. He calls them my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So as I said, Junia is the woman. We know that you know, from the language in, the, in this verse. She's the woman. And again, can't be certain, but probably a married, another married couple. That's why he put the two together, coupled them together. They had been Christians for some time in Christ before Paul, so that would be all about 25 years, long time and were well-known to the apostles or highly esteemed by the apostles. And Paul says this man and woman okay, were fellow prisoners, which means either they shared a cell with Paul during one of his many imprisonments. Remember, he kept getting locked up. Why? Because he was robbing cars? No, because he was preaching the gospel. He was proclaiming Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And so they too may have, they may have shared a cell together, or it just means that they also experienced that same fate at some point because of their gospel ministry, because they were proclaiming the gospel, they too were locked up, fellow prisoners. You know? And then the last woman we will look at is in Romans 16, 13, and it says, Paul says this, Greet Rufus, who is a man, <laughs> chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. I don't know why he doesn't, he doesn't name the mother. He just says, greet his mother as well. Um, but he does ask the church in Rome to send his greetings and said that she had been a mother to him. So we can take from that that this woman had apparently ministered to, to Paul by caring for him as she would her own son. Kind and caring. So here's the, the crux of all of it. One writer just says this, and they, they all point it out concerning the ladies that we see here. It's almost like a, a hall of fame for women in the church in one way, in one sense. He says, ministry in the early church was never confined to men. These greetings and other similar passages show that women engaged in ministries that were just as important as those of the men. And as I said before, 
you know, nowadays, yeah, we probably, we, we get that, you know, and women are involved in many ways, but it really stood out as something unique in that first century world. It was a male-dominated society, and, and, and women were in a sense kind of suppressed, but in the church, not so. Equal, co-heirs in Christ, empowered to serve the body of Christ, and they did, and so should you. Okay? So, and I was, so should you, ladies. So should you. God has gifted you just as he has gifted men and to serve the body of Christ. So again, it doesn't mean that we don't have different roles. It doesn't mean you stop being a woman or stop being a man in the church. But just to point out, um, we do this together, whether we're black or white or brown or purple whether we're poor or rich or have a college degree or don't, whether we are male or female, together as one in Christ, we serve one another and we serve our great God and Savior. Amen? I pray that that would always be true because it's just not always true everywhere on this globe, even within churches. My prayer is that it would always be true of this local body here in North Fontana. Okay? Keep it that way. Keep it that way. Brother, come on up and lead this diverse, wonderful body of Christ in that blessed celebration of communion.